Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. And I'm fighting for you, and I love doing it with everything that I have. And you know that. With the grace of God, we will win this war, and we will win this war quickly. And we will make... America great again. Six months until Election Day and President Trump is pitching his coronavirus response to voters in that latest campaign ad. Hey, everyone, I'm Dana Bash, CNN's chief political correspondent, and this is The Daily D.C., After saying repeatedly that the death toll from the virus would be around 60,000, a grim milestone the U.S. has already surpassed. President Trump painted a more dire picture last night. Look, we're going to lose anywhere from 75, 80 to 100,000 people. That's a horrible thing. We shouldn't lose one person over this. Despite the climbing predictions, the president continues to push for the economy to reopen, sympathizing with protesters across the country. We're getting rid of the virus, but we got to put our country back to work. All those people out there that are protesting, they're they're right. They want to go back to work. But with more states beginning to open this week, economic and health experts are clashing over how quickly life can really return to normal. Joining me now to discuss is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Governor, thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad to talk to you because there's so much to talk about, both on a policy level as somebody who has dealt with crises and, of course, on a political level. I want to start with The New York Times. The reporting that came out this afternoon is about an internal document that sh- from the CDC and FEMA that shows the administration's projections at 200,000 new cases each day by the end of the month and 3,000 daily deaths by early June. 3,000 deaths per day. I mean, if you think about it from the perspective of where you, you are in New Jersey, that's almost a 9-11 every single day. It's absolutely true. And, and But here's the thing, Dana, that is, you know, with what we're doing now. Um, and what we're doing now, I just don't think can be sustained as a country. You know, I, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post a week ago Sunday that just said we need to start restoring the American way of life. And, and if we leave this purely up to the physicians and the epidemiologists, Dana, we'll be locked in our houses for another year. Um, because they don't want uh, us to be doing anything other than um, staying in our homes until there's a vaccine. I I don't think that's reasonable. I think what we've done is slowed down the curve now, and I think we have to start to not 
you know, blow the whole thing open, not start having rock concerts and football games um, with full stadiums. But we have to start letting people get back to work because I can see in my own state here the devastation. And we're the second worst state in the country. But the economic devastation is equally sad. But it, will people be able to swallow the notion, if these projections are right, of nearly 3,000 deaths a day? They're going to have to. I mean, listen, Dana, we're in the midst of a, of a pandemic that we haven't seen in over 100 years. And we're going to have to continue to do things. We don't know what the result will be if everyone is out there wearing masks, if they're washing their hands on a regular basis, if we're taking temperature checks before people go into work. Um, as testing becomes more broadly available, we're able to do contact tracing. Um, this will not eliminate the deaths. But that's the fact of this pandemic. We have a virus that is is killing people. And what the other thing we need to do is to keep our more vulnerable folks um, inside. They're the ones who are going to really swallow this burden badly. The elderly um, and those with respiratory diseases, uh, depressed immune systems from cancer treatments or other things. Those folks are going to have to be even more careful than, than, than the rest of the population. But I don't know what the choice is. Yeah, you don't know what the choice is, but what's the messaging? Let's let's say you were in the White House right now. Um, I was there. I know you did run for yep, president. Absolutely. <laughs> but let's say you you let's say you made it. You were there now, and um, you had this report on your desk that said three thousand a day, and you had the feeling that you're saying right now that you know we've got to get life back to normal. What's your message? What should President Trump's message be to the American people? The message is that the American people have gone through significant death before. We've gone through it in World War I. We've gone through it in World War II. Um, we have gone through it, um, and we've survived it. We sacrificed those lives. We sent our young men during World War II over to Europe, out to the Pacific, knowing, knowing that many uh, of them would not come home alive. And we decided to make that sacrifice because what we were standing up for was the American way of life. In the very same way now, we have to stand up for the American way of life. Um, we have to say we're going we're, wow. to be willing to endure this. And this is not to go back to normal. Let's be clear, Dana. We're not going to go back to normal. Right. But we're going to go. This is just to open the door to your yes, house. Yes, to be right? functional is to let people make a living. I, there was a story in the New York Times last week about in Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, which is a, a suburb of Atlantic City. You had three one-mile-long car lines from three different directions to get to a food bank. And when they interviewed one of the women, she and her husband are casino workers. They've both been laid off. Um, they're afraid they're not going to be able to pay their mortgage. And the most tragic part, Dana, is her quote was, I feel like a total failure. Now, this woman didn't do anything wrong. She did nothing. But she feels like a failure. The, Dana, the mental health addiction domestic violence and suicide um, costs of this, of not letting people go back to work, are going to be very much, uh, very, very difficult for the American people to take. And what kind of economy will we have when we come back? So this isn't a choice between, you know, people, I see it all over the different networks, saying, well, this is a choice between money and lives. No, it's not. And what the president needs to do and governors need to do in my opinion, is we don't let the epidemiologists run the state. If we did, they should be governor. But they're not. The governor has to take in the medical information, the economic information, the educational information, and then that governor, he or she has to bring all that together and make the very best decision he can 
or she can, balancing all that information. So if it's not a decision between health, uh, how did you put it? Between, between the economy you know, and Money and lives. lives. People say money and lives, and I think that's money a false choice. Money and lives. Choice. So what is it a choice between? Or is that just a false choice? It's, a, it's, it's just much more gray than that. It's a false choice, Dana, because in the end, you don't want to, cho you don't want to choose either if it means eliminating the other. Because what are those lives going to be worth if people can't go to work, if they can't support their families, if they're gonna become homeless, um, you know, if they have to go to food banks um, every week to be able to feed their families? That, that's not sustainable either. So this is what leadership is about. Leadership is about being willing to make tough decisions and live with the consequences. You know, they used to say to me all the time, I had a, a predecessor, Governor Tom Kane, who, when I became governor... New Jersey and per you, perfect together. Exactly right. And he, <laughs> he, he used to say to me, um, you know, Governor, um, the, the, the decisions that get to your desk are never easy ones. Because if they were easy, one of your staff would have made it before you. These are the decisions that governors are facing now, and they can't be timid. We are being faced right now in, in some of the states with paralyzing timidity rather than Churchillian boldness. And that's what we really need. And to understand, listen, when, when Churchill made the decision to fight, to not give in to the Nazis, and they were getting blitzkrieged in London, I bet his approval numbers weren't great. But, you know, he knew that for the long-term survival of the British democracy, he needed to do it. And I think that's what we need from governors now is some boldness and some ingenuity and honesty to the people. In the end, you're going to have to tell them people are going to die. And it's going to be awfully sad. And 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 I can you see can you see or hear those words actually crossing Donald Trump's lips? Well, I think they kind of have. To be fair, I mean, I think he said, "Listen, one, losing one life is is more than we'd want to lose." And all of this is a tragedy. Um, and I think you know, in the end, what the president is trying to do now, um, and it's very difficult. But what he's trying to do, um, you know, remember when he came out in the press conference and said, "He's in charge; he'll make the decisions." People went crazy. And said, no, 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 this is not a dictatorship, right? Then he turned it over to the governors. Now you got some people saying, well, he's not showing enough leadership. Um, you know, he can't dictate to them what they're going to do in their states. He's made that decision. So I think what he needs to be doing is, is, is to doing what he's doing right now. I think he's striking the right tone right now, which is encouraging governors to look for innovative ways to be aggressive about it and to pledge that the federal government is going to help them with testing. I know in our in, in my own state and your old home state of New Jersey, you know, he just sent hundreds of thousands of swabs to New Jersey um, at Phil Murphy's, Governor Phil Murphy's request. You know, we've got to continue to be able to, and I said in my post column, we should be taking over the supply lines and all the things you need to do testing so they can be you know, focused in the right way. I wish the president would do that. So that was going to be my next question. That you said that you had you and you've written several op-eds for the Washington Post. One back in March, where you said you were, you know, maybe a, a bit of a Cassandra. That you were, um, you said, I fear Americans are not yet taking this virus seriously enough. And you know, you were right. The most recent, you said that you really want the federal government to use the Defense Production Act for testing. They haven't done that. And are you seeing the states suffering because 
the president hasn't taken your advice? Well, I think the states are competing because the president hasn't taken that advice. And that's what you really don't want to have. I think if you, you have a central organization like FEMA that is used to making these type of distribution decisions based upon need, and if FEMA were the central repository for all the things you need for testing, the swabs, the reagents, all the, and the, the containers, all the rest, and they were able to send those out to the states where the need is currently the greatest. Um, nothing against our friends, let's say, in South Dakota, but I suspect that the needs in New York, New Jersey, and Illinois are greater right now than the ones in South Dakota. So FEMA should be able to make those judgments. It shouldn't be based upon the personal relationships or the ingenuity of the governors. Larry Hogan in Maryland, Governor Hogan did a great job um, with the help of his wife, who is of Korean descent, yeah. you know, getting um, getting all those tests from South Korea, but it shouldn't be based on that. Mm -hmm. And I and that's that's my that's you know my only um, you know problem with not using it is that you're putting people at a disadvantage, and the federal government shouldn't control the testing, but should control access to the supplies for the testing and then let the governors implement the testing because he's right. The federal government doesn't have control over these labs; the, the states do. That, that's exactly right. Um, but because of what you just said, that, you know, the states are still very, very far behind. Every governor says, you know, that they don't have what they need and they are trying to find alternate ways to get things that the federal government isn't giving them. Um, they're not there on testing to get to the place where the economy opens back up. So how do you square that circle? Well, I mean, if you were governor right now, um, first I played the if you were president uh, game. Now let's play yeah. if you were still governor of New Jersey. What would you do? I'd be reopening um, and, and reopening in, in- Fully? No, in the steps that I laid out in that Washington Post mm -hmm. column. Okay, so uh, right, you know, right. businesses are allowed to start to reopen. Um, you start to, you, you keep them at smaller capacities. You have people giving um, temperature checks before they walk into any place of business. You know, remember, Dana, before 9-11, we used to walk into, um, we used to walk into office buildings anywhere in this country without showing any identification. Walk by, go upstairs, go to where you were going, and, you're, and, and now, every place you go, you have to show ID to get in. We thought we'd never get used to that. Now it's a way of life. Temperature checks are going to be a way of life now for a long period of time until we get a vaccine. And so uh, those are the kind of things we need to do. And that's what I would be doing in New Jersey. I wouldn't, wouldn't have kept the, beat, the, uh, the parks and, and the golf courses closed as long as we did here. I wouldn't be keeping small businesses closed. I mean, think about this for instance. In New Jersey right now, we're allowing, and many other states, we're allowing Walmart and Target to remain open because they sell food. Okay, that makes sense. But they also sell lots of other stuff too, right? They sell clothing, they sell equipment, they sell all kinds of things. Yet the small businesses that sell those things are not allowed to be open. Well, why? What's the rationale for that? If, if Trader Joe's and Walmart and Target can make it safe, then the corner store can make it safe too. And so that's the kind of thing I'd be looking at. These are common sense things. If we're gonna allow supermarkets to be open, then we should also allow smaller stores and businesses to be open as well with appropriate checks, masks being worn by everyone, both the employees and the customers. And, and that will help very much to, to keep uh, the, the, the disease rate where it is now or lower. 
So my guess is if you made that decision and said temperature checks, one of the things that your public health administrator would say to you is, but governor, just because somebody doesn't have a temperature doesn't mean they're not asymptomatic and they will walk into whatever business that they're working in and spread the virus to everybody there. And I'd look at my health commissioner and say, you're absolutely right, but I don't have the luxury to be perfect. I cannot be perfect on this because if I wait until this is perfect, we will be in a depression. And then my next problem is going to be dealing with the millions of New Jerseyans who are unemployed and how I'm going to allow them to feed their families and stay in their homes and all the rest. Dana, the problem here is we're all looking for the perfect solution. And I and it, it, it drives me crazy, quite frankly, as I watch the, the, the news networks, yours and MSNBC and Fox and all of them, who have anchors who are up there saying things, you know, grimly about, well, you know, we, we have to save every life we can. Well, of course, everybody wants to save every life they can. But the question is, towards what end ultimately? Are there ways that we can we can thread the middle here to allow there, that there are going to be deaths and they're going to be deaths no matter what? Um, and if we can do things to keep people in the mode of wearing masks, of wearing gloves, of of you know distancing where appropriate, we've got to let some of these folks get back to work because if we don't, um, we're going to destroy the American way of life in these families, and it will be years and years before we can recover. It's so. I mean, this is. As, a, as somebody who is a leader and has studied leadership um, in a really serious way, can you think of something that is this hard and has been this hard for the leaders of this country to confront right now? Not since World War II on a national level, because as we know, World War II changed every aspect of American life. And uh, everyone had to do things differently and people were rationing things and there were rationing stamps of how much meat you could have and, and, uh, and, and different other types of, of, of materials that were all being dedicated to the war effort. I don't think we've seen a challenge like this on a national basis since FDR. We've had regional issues like this, like when we had Hurricane Sandy, some of the awful Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina um, you know, we've had so the wildfires in California. We've had some challenges that really markedly changed regions, but in a national level, no. But remember, too, that we're centered in places, you and I, in Washington, D.C., in New Jersey, where these are some of the worst places in the country. But if you go out right. to a lot of other places in the country, they can't relate to it. I have a friend in Iowa um, who continues to text me to complain about the fact that they can't relate to what they're seeing on TV from New York and New Jersey, and why aren't they allowed to go back and get to work? It's a hard question to answer if you're a national and leader. How, okay, and how much does the fact that the, those happen to be red states play into this? You know, I, listen. For the most I, part. I, I think that um, if, you, if you look at it, I think that that's a general distinction between Republicans and Democrats in this regard are Democrats generally like government controlling things, Republicans generally don't like government controlling things. So let's think that's a basic difference between the two parties. The, the, and, and so that certainly circulates down to this, right? That Republicans in the beginning were supportive of what, of the lockdown orders. I think you had generalized support across the country. But, you know, they think now, okay, it's time for us to, to start to ease off a little bit here and start to allow private you know, the private sector to come back and try to help. Because none of these people, let's face it, nobody who's coming into a business wants to be known as a business that kills its customers, right? So all the private businesses, and they're not going to want to get sick themselves. 
So people will take steps to do it. I think the red state, blue state distinction is, is a much more basic one between what Democrats and Republicans believe the appropriate role of government is. No one disputes, right. I agree yeah, with no that. One disputes that, that government does belong in making sure um, that, this is, that, that we need to protect the lives of people. But we also have a, a, a large obligation to giving them the opportunity to support their families and sustain themselves because we can't afford to do it long term. All right, so I want to ask you a couple of questions about the president, um, whom you've been friends with now for like 20 years, right? Yep. Do I have yep. the numbers right? Just about, yep. So, yeah. Okay, so um, the question that I want to ask you is about what did he know and when did he know it about the intelligence on this virus? And um, last night he said the U.S. intelligence did not bring up the coronavirus subject matter until late January um, and only spoke of the virus as non-threatening and in a matter-of-fact way. CNN and other reporting says, no, no, he was briefed on it, or at least it was in his brief, the beginning of January. What's, what's your take on that? Listen, I think that, you know, I, first off, I don't know. Let's start off with that. I don't know what the truth of the matter is. But what I will say is that, a lot of people in the beginning of this thing were not taking it seriously, right? I mean, you know, and, and... But those are people who didn't have access to intelligence, right? Well, yes, but we also had access to a lot of things that were going on, um, that we knew were going on in China, that were being reported um, in the media generally. Certainly in the month of February, that was the case. And, and I think everybody got caught a little bit off guard by this. Only the president knows, okay, what he was told and when he was told it. Um, and and I you know I don't think there's any upside at this point in a lot of ways in terms of looking backwards on that. There'll be plenty of time to do that when we're kind of past this, and we'll do I think a real postmortem like we did after 9/11. You know about and and it led to a lot of changes in the laws about you know siloing between the intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies, and I think a lot of positive changes that have made the country safer over the course of the last nearly 20 years. And we definitely are gonna to need to do that. So I don't know, Dana, what he knew and what he didn't know, um, but I do know that uh, no one from, let's say, early March, early to mid-March on, um, didn't understand that this was gonna be a problem. And, and, and they've taken actions, both at the federal and state levels, at varying degrees of speed, um, uh, to be able to deal with it. I might have been more aggressive. You've said, I might have been more aggressive, and I've said that yeah. before, but that's generally my nature. Yeah. And knowing the president the way you do, you have said on more than one occasion that um, the, this is the most frustrating thing for him because historically he has been able to, to, to talk his way in or out of yep. pretty much anything, to use his charm and his guile uh, and, um, you know, his critics would say his lack of shame. <laughs> and... Um, and he can't do that now. And so knowing him as you do, how, give me your observation on how he's doing right now. Well, I think you're right that the, the way I put it is he has been used to having the force of his personality in every way be able to prevail in certain circumstances and get him to a place where he wanted to be. This is one where this is a virus that the force of his personality can't move. And so I, I think it's very frustrating for him, as it would be for anybody. It's also incredibly stressful um, because you're watching Americans uh, suffer. Um, now, on two tracks, right? You're watching them suffer on a, a physical way uh, for the lives that we're losing and the people who are ill. And then you're watching them suffer economically 
in a way that you thought you had pretty well squared away as president and had a good economy going where people were prospering. So all that's very frustrating for but, him. But okay, so that's true. It's obviously frustrating, but he takes that and he takes it too far in so many uh, different occasions and you know crosses the line in saying things that just aren't true or don't come out uh, the way that he predicted it. I mean, is there a political, how much of a political liability is this for him? And does it really test the Teflon Don that we have seen? Well, it's certainly not a positive. Okay, let's put it that way. It's not a positive. And so he would have much rather never, never had this happen. And I think he was cruising towards a pretty certain reelection. Um, you know, even as, as, as late as, as, um, as two months ago. I mean, I think in the beginning of March, most people still thought, you know, they saw the virus coming and they were a little bit concerned about it. But I think most people felt like he was in good shape. So it's certainly not a positive. I, I think that, and I, I, you know, I've said to him that I think that the, the daily press conferences um, were something that I was okay with, but thought that it should be only 10 or 15 minutes of his time. That he should get out there in the beginning, um, announce whatever he wanted to announce or emphasize for that particular day, take two, three, four questions, however much they could fit in in a 15-minute time period, and then say, and now I'm going to turn it over to Vice President Pence and the rest of the folks on the task force, uh, see you tomorrow, and walk out. Because I don't think anybody um, wears well, as a public figure, an hour and a half or two hours a day. I also have said that I think that the press, candidly, Dana, and, and the president were in a death spiral together. Um, and what I mean by that is that they feed off of each other. And the president gets angry about what he considers to be unfair or gotcha questions. The press gets angry because they don't think the president's forthcoming. And so their, their questions get nastier and more difficult. And I've been on the receiving end of this at times, and, and that's the moment after you do a few of those, you got to walk away if you're the leader. You got to walk away because um, it's really hard for him to walk well, away well, it is. from that spotlight. It is. And it's hard for him. He figures, again, this goes back to the force of his personality, right? He figures that if he explains it long enough, he'll convince you. He really believes that about himself, right? And so I think, um, I think that uh, he's had to learn, and I think he's seeing that now. Um, that sometimes there is just no explaining that, that sometimes it's better just to walk away. And so I think that going forward politically, this is going to change a number of times over the course of the next six months. But right now it's advantage Joe Biden because he doesn't have to say anything. I mean, it's a great luxury to be the Democratic nominee for president in the middle of a crisis, whatever that crisis would be, and for people not to expect you to say anything. The great thing about that is you can't be second-guessed. Um, you can't be wrong. You can't misspeak. You can't lose your temper. I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty big luxury. And so I think right now, politically, it's advantage Joe Biden. Um, but we'll, you know, we'll see. That's probably going to change and rotate, as you know, from watching this yeah, business. It's early. It's early, yeah. it's early for that. And I say this with respect because I'm quoting your your wife. <laughs> uh, I'm quoting you quoting your yeah. wife that you're like a caged animal right now because you have so many ideas about how to deal with uh, this crisis and you're writing op-eds, you're talking to people like me, you're, you know, but what's it like for you as somebody who has 
the idea and the notion of leadership at your coal and in your uh, in your soul right now? Well, it's listen. It's always it's always frustrating uh, when you've had really central positions in public life that when they end, if you still feel like you have something to contribute when you're not contributing. Um, but you also know that everybody's got, you know, phases of their lives. And right now I'm in a phase of my life where I'm in the private sector and this is the way I can contribute and I'll continue to do it that way. But sure, it's always frustrating because you have all of this um, experience and I still am one of these people who's enough of a nerd, Dana, that like I care about my country <laughs> and, and, and I... And I um, and I feel like if you can make a difference, you have an obligation to do that. So I'll try to do it in every way that I can. Um, but I also won't go back into public life to do something that I don't think is significant, right? So that's the balance you have to find in your life because then you'd be just as frustrated, right? If you were doing something where yeah. you, weren't, you weren't really contributing. So yeah, I mean, I think Mary Pat's um, quote of like a caged animal is probably about right on certain days. <laughs> and I'll, I'll watch certain briefings or other things and be yelling at the television set. Um, whether it's oh, so you're like the rest of America. Absolutely right. Whether it's a governor giving it, or, <laughs> or or the White House, or or people on Capitol Hill who I don't think quite get it. But you know, um, that's it's a long life, and I'm 57 years old, so I am hardly done um, contributing yet. And, no. and um, I'm going to continue to speak out through venues like this and op-ed columns and other things to make sure that I'm putting my thoughts out there for people who are in decision-making. Um, positions right now um, to consider and um, always leave myself available um, to uh, consult with people when they need to. At the end of our conversation, I asked Governor Christie about a report in Axios that the president is unhappy with his FBI director, Christopher Wray, and would like to replace him, but is unlikely to do so before the election. Now, Governor Christie was the one who actually recommended Wray to the president back in 2017. Here's what he had to say. I think it'd be a big mistake. Uh, Chris Ray should not hang for the sins of Jim Comey. And so in, in the latest uh, situation with Flynn, um, those things were all done under Jim Comey's watch and in some of them at Jim Comey's direction. And Chris Ray has had no involvement in that at all and in fact walled himself off from the Mueller investigation when he got in there to avoid any accusations of political partisanship on his part. And, but it is Chris Ray's FBI, by the way, that turned over that information to prosecutors. It's Chris Ray's FBI that had that in front of the judge so the judge could release it. So I, I don't understand the criticism of Chris Ray. Jim Comey presided over this mess. And all those people who were, you know, hailing St. Jim Comey, you know, when he wrote his book and all the rest of this, you remember I was one of the ones out there saying, and I've known Jim for a long time and consider, considered him a friend. But he, he lost his way. And this is another example of having lost his way. But if you look at this, everybody who was in leadership at the FBI at the time those decisions were made, Chris Ray has fired all of them. And there's a whole new leadership team in the FBI. And so Chris Ray has done the things that needed to be done to get rid of that toxic culture inside of the FBI. And I know the president doesn't view it this way at the moment, but I think he should that Chris Ray has changed the, 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 the approach at the FBI and he's cleaned it up and uh, he, should get, he should be commended for it. Uh, and all those people looking for conspiracy theories um, you know, should be looking elsewhere. I think Chris has done a very good job. Governor, thank you so much for joining me from the great state of New Jersey, Absolutely. the Garden State. 
Dana, thank All you. Right. Thank, thank you. you again, Governor. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners as well. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, please consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about this podcast, please do so using the hashtag TheDailyDC. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.